Well, as I already mentioned, you have me tonight. Again, my name is Eddie Thompson. I've been here since 2005. Um, and uh, it has been a pleasure to serve in a few areas. And I'm currently Sunday school teacher of the uh, uh, co-ed 2A. Actually, it used to be 1A. Now it's 2B. We've just grown and gotten older, and we just had to change names. Uh, none of y'all would know anything about that, I'm sure. So... Um, but I appreciate Scott. Scott asked me on Sunday after, well, during the meet and greet time to, to, to lead tonight. And, uh, you know, I don't know about y'all, but sometimes the first thing that pops to your mind, what's the best excuse I can come up with? Okay, if we're going to be honest. This is a little bit out of my comfort zone. I'm a Sunday school teacher. And um, so by habit, I may ask questions. And so y'all, by habit, feel free to discuss and answer, and uh, we'll be just fine. But... Um, I just wanted to, um, tonight I was thinking about what to speak on, and Scott had such a good message on Sunday, if you remember what it was, about worshiping and spirit and truth, and there were things that came to my mind just to expound on that, not to, to, to do anything better, but kind of just add to it the kind of, um, uh, the Lord's been teaching me. I'm going to have to be honest, I cannot take all the credit for this. Some of you men may recognize some of the things I bring up tonight. This is the book we're going through as in men's small group. And I, let me tell you, it is powerful. Uh, it takes through uh, 18 or 19 chapters of attributes that a Christian, uh, a godly man should have. And we've lost that. We've lost it. I, this, this is my edition. I've had it probably 15 years. So it's the original probably 1980, mid-80s. I think they've added a chapter since then, but actually, so many things that he offers, you say, those are bad statistics. Guess what? I bet they've gotten a lot worse. It's called Disciplines of a Godly Man. And Kevin Seeger actually had a few extra copies. They're 10 bucks. Highly recommended. So I uh, don't want to plagiarize. If you hear some, some things that uh, I bring up tonight from this book, guys, roll with it, okay? But tonight, what I wanted to do is kind of, uh, again, we talked about worshiping in spirit and truth on Sunday. How do we do that? What are the practical applications of doing that? Sometimes we, we talk about things that we think we know. You ever heard the, the saying, we use a lot of $5 church words? They're big words, but guess what? People out there have no idea what they mean. And here's a secret. Sometimes we don't either. We don't have a grasp of them. So... Uh, Scott gave me specific instructions on teaching tonight. He said, make sure you're doing your you're teaching somewhere between Genesis 1 and Revelation 22. So uh, I'm going to be covering some, some, some topics within that framework, okay? But again, how do we worship in spirit and truth? What do we do? What do we not do? So those are some of the things. It's kind of a broad topic in a way. I'll be covering several things, but bear with me. And, um, uh, you know, if I lose you, say stop, <laughs> you know, uh, because sometimes I, uh, uh, I lose myself. But anyway, uh, let's go ahead and start. I'm going to show a quick video. Well, Jonathan's going to show a quick video for us. A little bit of humor, but it'll get us started, and it's on, on the track of where we want to go tonight.
you were laughing outside, but you said, yep, that's happened. That's happened with me before. That is, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> we've had that before, haven't we? Um, in most of our minds, there, there's an overlapping between what we call worship and what we call church. You know, some of this thinking might be correct, but some of it might be wrong, might be popular ideas that just might not be. Um, I know on Sunday, on Wednesday nights, I'm probably preaching to the choir on a lot of this. You know, you've heard that saying. Um, But I think it's some things that it's good for us to be reminded of, okay? Understand, without a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, all is lost, period. But we can also never minimize the importance of his church, as many evangelicals are doing today, aren't they? Church attendance has been affected by conditional loyalty and has produced an army of religious hitchhikers. Let me explain. A hitchhiker says, you buy the car, you pay for the repairs and the upkeep, keep the insurance current, and fill it up with gas. And I'll ride with you. But if you have an accident, you're on your own. And oh, oh, by the way, I'll probably sue you, okay? So relate that to maybe religious hitchhikers. There's a similar thought process in church today. These church hitchhikers, if you will, will say, I'll let others attend meetings, serve on committees, be a Sunday school teacher or a deacon, sit in the nursery or teach the children or pay the bills. But if things don't suit me, I'll criticize and complain and probably bail out. My thumb is always out for a better ride. Sometimes we call these church hoppers, okay? So Kent Hughes in the book, he said this, This pseudo-loyalty thinking is fueled by consumer McChristian mentality. What he means by that is we pick and choose what we want and don't want, like a religious shopping list. So today we're ending up with a sad phenomenon, churchless Christians. There's no accountability. There's no discipline. There's no discipleship, which is why the church has produced a shriveled leadership over the years. And man, I hate to say it, we have dropped the ball. We have dropped the ball in a big way. But we all are. The church in general, he calls this the de-churching of America, an impulse against authority, people who say, I only need Jesus. Or they might say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You know, you've heard this before. He, uh, it also makes irrelevant the visible church for those outside the church that needs to see us being the church out there. Both the church and a lost world need to see Christians practicing the discipline of regular church attendance, membership in church, regular systematic financial giving, participation in church, giving your time, your talents, your creativity. So tonight, let's look at a couple things of what the church is supposed to be and what worship should look like, okay? We're going to have two main scriptures tonight. One is from Acts 17. The other is from John 4. So you want to just have those handy. That'll be fine. Acts 17 first. Now, what we can do, if we look at Paul's journeys, we can look and see a a similar pattern in the way he did things when he came to a new city. Remember what he would usually do first? Where would he go? The local synagogue. And he reasoned with them and examined the scriptures. And usually what would happen out of that? He would get threatened. A group or mob might have wanted to kill him. At the very least, he disturbed. He disrupted the people. 
and he was sent away. But then we also see a small group that listened, a remnant, if you will, and some that came to Christ. So Acts 17 gives us a good snapshot here uh, uh, of this repetitive cycle, okay? In verse 1, again, Acts 17, Paul came to Thessalonica. He reasoned and preached the resurrected Jesus in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. The Jews were jealous, and wicked men formed a mob. But in verse 4, we see some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. We get to verse 10. He, 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 we, we find him in uh, Berea. He went to the Jewish synagogue, examined the scriptures daily. But again, Jews were agitated and stirred up the crowds. But many of them, therefore, believed. So see, we see the results. It might not be a majority, but we're, Paul is seeing results from the work he's doing. Paul then comes to Athens, where the city was full of idols. In verse 17, we read, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul debated in open forum with philosophers of the day. You may have heard of the Epicureans. They believed that God existed, but they had no interest in the welfare of men. In fact, they, they focused on, on pleasures, and uh, whether it was sex or drink, that was their ultimate goal of life. There were also another group called Stoics. They believed in human self-sufficiency, okay, that people could rise above their emotions, whether it be pain or pleasure, and they should, the body should be under control at all times. These are the people that Paul was dealing with, these philosophers there in Athens. Verse 18 says, um, well, the Greek philosophers listened to him, but they called him a babbler because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Do you think Paul was made fun of? And you know what? And for us, that seems like a tragic tragedy, you know, today. That's probably the limit of, of a lot of our persecution. Believe me, that was the least of Paul's worries. Um, Paul told them of the many idols he saw. One was even dedicated to the unknown God. And Paul wisely uses this to begin his, his argument. Verse 22, he says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Now, if you remember on Sunday, Scott, Pastor Scott defined worship as, and he used a Webster's Dictionary uh, definition, a reverence offered to a divine being. A reverence offered to a divine being. Now, by definition, these Athenians, they were worshiping, okay? Of course, they had hundreds, maybe thousands of divine beings, okay? But here's the thing. It certainly was not worshiping the one true God that we know. They were polytheistic, and this unknown God, it was a way to cater or a way to cover all their bases just in case they missed one, right? But Paul is saying, yes, you missed one. You missed the one. So let me tell you about him. And Paul begins his defense, and he starts in verse 26 and continues on. And basically he tells them that, um, uh, well, let's read it. So in verse 26, And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place, 
that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So notice how quick he goes from what they're what they believe, what they know in their society, and he turns it around to the truth that we know from the Bible. In verse 29, it says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the, the, the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. See how quickly he turned that around and he's already got his, his, his argument. He's making his point that, that God is in control and they need to repent of their sins. And then there, there in verse 31, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What's he doing? He's preaching Jesus Christ resurrected. That's the gospel, folks. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were uh, Dionysius, the uh, area. Uh, I had this down, I promise you, when I was <laughs> Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So what can we take from this passage? I think we can make the point that where we worship should not be the focus. It shouldn't. Can the place where we worship be significant and important? Sure, I think we think a lot of our, 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 our worship, uh, our sanctuary here, and we should. But it should not be why we worship. It should not be the focus of our worship. We agree with that as well, I believe. Again, looking at Paul's pattern, we notice Paul began at each city in the synagogue. Now, did you know these buildings were not necessarily built for religious purposes? It was a place where people in the community could gather and learn and study and discuss problems. So it's really more like a classroom. Even Jews didn't automatically consider the synagogue in and of itself a holy place. Remember what they had. They had... The temple, that was their place of worship. But first century synagogues didn't have a Jewish, uh, Jewish features per se. Um, some of you have been to the Holy Land. I had the privilege a couple years ago, and we see the replicas of these synagogues, and they're really small places. They're not really big. They're usually in a, a rectangle with seats all around, and ever who's speaking is actually in the center. Okay, um, Maybe 100 people could fit in it. But here's the thing. The point is simply that there was nothing magnificent about the building itself. In the Greek, synagogue actually means a gathering of people or a place of assembly. That's it. Nothing religious, nothing spiritual about that. So maybe that should be a warning to us. Okay? Let's make sure our sanctuary, our house of worship, did not, does not just simply become a gathering of people or a place of assembly. Here in Athens... There in Acts 17, the religious philosophers ended up taking Paul to the Areopagus. Now, originally, this was a place where people were judged, probably serious crimes like uh, murder, um, uh, just other serious crimes of the day. Do you remember what another name for this hill was called? Huh? 
Mars Hill, Mars Hill. Now, where does it get the name? A Roman god of war. So again, we see there's no Christian significance about this place. Yet we know in verse 34, again, Paul left, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were, you know, we mentioned the people that I'm not going to try to pronounce again. Okay? But when people come to Christ, there has to be true worship going on. And even the temple itself, back in the day, it had no spiritual or conversion qualities. As magnificent as it was, it was a structure that did not last. Just like Jesus said, there will be no stone left one on top of the other. In Israel, I got to see many locations of biblical and historical significance, and it was awesome. If you've never got to go, I hope you get to. It really brings the Bible to life in many ways. But the more places I got to see, the more I heard from our tour guide. This may have been where so-and-so happened, or this event could have taken place here. You see, most of the places, the exact location where Jesus was born, where Golgotha was located, Jesus' tomb, we're not entirely sure that's the exact location they were. We have some good ideas, better ideas on some things than others. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where those events took place. The matter is that it did take place. For example, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Who's been to Jerusalem? Okay. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Many Christians believe it to be the site of Jesus' tomb. To them, it is one of the most important shrines in Christianity. Many Christians believe that it marks the place where Jesus was, Jesus was crucified and buried and where he rose again from the dead. Inside of this church, there was a slab of stone. There were long lines waiting to get to it. It's over an hour long. So I just kind of went to the side and kind of saw what was going on. There were people falling on it. They were kissing it. They were weeping over it. They were lying prostrate over it. Uh, you know, this is where they said Jesus' body lay. In essence, they were worshiping this rock. Now, there's two problems with that. One, we don't even know this is the place where Jesus body laid but the other thing we don't worship a rock what would that be an idol it's an idol in fact scott mentioned this sunday if the temple did exist today people would probably be worshiping that building itself that would be kind of an idol in and of itself okay and i was thinking while i was over there that might be one reason why god didn't allow some of these structures to stand and they were destroyed because those uh, those uh, places, those locations might be places of, uh, that we would uh, be tempted to worship. Okay? Again, where we worship should not be the focus of our worship. It is more about the attitude of our hearts. Who's the temple today? Where's the temple? It's in all of us. We are the temple. We're the temple. That brings up our second point. The focus of worship, though, is not about me or you. I turned 53 last month. Puts me right smack dab in, the, in middle age. That's it's strange. It's strange. It's interesting because I've watched the generation ahead of me, my parents, and uh, I remember things well growing up and seeing uh, uh, a generation of, uh, of strong people, spiritually and otherwise. Okay? I also see the next generation, my kids, growing up. Okay? I don't know, what, what do they call them now? Millennials, Generation X, Y, or Z. Uh, I get confused. But, <laughs> but here's the thing. We have tended to call this group the me generation. 
the me generation. But you know what? We've got to be careful. Even though we say, the kids today say, it's all about me. How does that help me? If it doesn't affect me, don't bother me. Leave me alone. But you know what? We've all got a little bit of that self-gene in us, don't we? We think we're selfless quite often, and, and maybe we do. We are. But you know what? The Bible alludes to the fact that we are quite selfish. It is about us too often. You know, none of us naturally seek after God. You know, you've heard this before. Our preacher has preached it. No little baby comes out just wanting to do good. You know, we don't have to teach our kids how to lie. We are born into sin. Okay? So, we naturally don't seek God. Therefore, true worship cannot begin with us. In fact, it's not about us at all. Rather, it's about giving glory to Almighty God. You see, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4.7 to train yourself to be godly. That word train has a lot of meaning and it, it, it goes into you know, running a race, unencumbered, focused on, your, on, the, you know, on victory. But you know what? That train, that word also means it, it takes a lot of work, a lot of discipline. Now again, God, God you know, uh, is godly. We need to be godly, but God just isn't godly. That's who he is. He is God. But we need to be more godly. We need to follow the example of Christ. And if you will, let's go to John 4. This is the, the second passage. Um, a very familiar story. You'll know it. From the other Gospels we know about this time, this is when John the Baptist was put in prison. He was waiting execution. Do you remember what he did? He denounced Herod's unlawful marriage to his brother's wife. Jesus left Judea. He was heading north towards Galilee. And he could have gone maybe one of three different ways. But he went smack dab through where? Samaria. Samaria, okay? Jews didn't take that route. Why? The Samaritans were like Gentiles. They were just, uh, they were their enemies. Jews were prejudiced, in fact, arrogant against them, okay? But that wasn't Jesus. That wasn't Jesus. Jesus did, did take the route through Samaria, and he had a divine appointment there. Jesus arrived at the city of Sychar in Samaria about the sixth hour. We can imagine it was pretty hot. He was tired. Who was out today? <laughs> hot, isn't it? So that's what I imagine. He was out. He was probably, he had walked a long way. He was tired. He was thirsty. Now, Samaritans were poor people, okay? Uh, but he met a woman. He met a woman, a social outcast. She was probably avoided by people in the community, probably called certain names. We know her as the woman at the well. But Jesus treated her differently. Instead of being harsh and blunt, he was gentle. He was kind. And he appealed to her sympathy. He said, Give me a drink. She replies in an expected manner. Why would a Jew ask a Samaritan woman for a drink? Instead of giving her a racial lecture, he offered her living water. Of course, she didn't understand what he meant, but it did make her curious. Jesus explained that the well water only temporarily quenches physical thirst. Starting in verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that will give him that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
She still doesn't get it, okay, but that, she's about to. But us, like this woman, Jesus is offering himself that living water, but we have to ask for it, okay? In verse 16, Jesus tells her to what? Go get your husband. He already knew. She'd had five husbands, and the one she was living with now, she was living with in adultery. So Jesus begins convincing her that she lacks in her spiritual condition. So the woman in verse 19, she says, I perceive you to be a prophet. You know what? Similar today. A lot of people think Jesus was a good man. He was a good teacher, maybe a good role model, but certainly not the Son of God. In verse 20, she said to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Let me ask you, what mountain is she talking about? Do you happen to know? Mount Gerizim, okay, if I'm, I hope I'm saying that right. That's where the Samaritans contended was the place where Abraham offered up Isaac as a sacrifice. They had built a temple there similar to the one the Jews had built in Jerusalem, and this was one of the many controversies that faced the Jews and the Samaritans. But let's carefully understand what this woman is asking here. The woman is really asking, where's the appropriate place to worship? Is it in Samaria or is it Jerusalem? Remember, we've already talked about the synagogue. It's not the place. That hill called Areopagus, it's not that place. Not even in the temple. And now we see it's not even about a mountain. Okay? We all know people who love to argue about religion, but they don't want to live it. Okay? This helps emphasize the first point. It's not where we worship, but how we worship. Our heart of worship. We must open our lives and confess our sins. And here's a hint. He already knows them. (laughs) He already knows our sins. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Again, not about where. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Of course, he's talking about him, from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and and truth. There we go. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He then said what's most important. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. What's Jesus saying here? He's telling her that God in spirit seeks true worshipers, regardless of the place. In verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. You see, Samaritans believed Messiah was coming as well. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You can imagine the look on her face, right? He's saying, I am the Messiah that you're looking for. Now, what do we know happened now? The woman went out and she told the men of the town. But what we do is we forget the resulting effect of what this story does. The story of the woman at the well is not about that woman at the well. Let's see what happens. In verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. 
You see, the Lord used the testimony of this sinful Samaritan woman, and over the next two days, many came to Jesus because of this woman. What does this tell us? God can use anyone, even sinners like you and me. Let's don't get on our high horse, okay? We can cast stones at the woman. We've got our own skeletons in the closet, don't we? Verse 42. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You see, they came to Jesus and drank the living water. The only condition they had to meet was they needed to thirst. A few things we can take from this Jesus dealing with this woman, okay? We can learn. Jesus avoided getting tangled up in various uh, theological concepts, and he refused to argue with the woman and didn't browbeat her. Too often we want to argue apologetics and win the debate rather than simply allow God to change the heart of the person. Jesus also repeatedly spoke of the living water. That was the only real issue here. And he concluded by pointing it all back to himself. You see, it isn't about what we should be doing. It's not about us. It's all about Jesus himself. Now, in Sunday school, are some of y'all in Second Timothy like we are? Okay. Second Timothy, it talks about, it's Paul, and it's probably his last letter. He was in prison. He was probably awaiting execution. He was in a cold, dark dungeon, a condemned man. Now, Paul addresses coming apostasy, and that apostasy is not due to ignorance. It's rather a deliberate, intentional departure from the faith. Paul's emphasis is the word of God and the gospel, while at the same time denouncing false prophets and heresy. Are we dealing with false prophets and heresy today? You bet we are. How how do we know if it's false prophecy and heresy? We've got to know the word. If we don't know it, we're going to be taken in. Now, since Scott is not here, let's talk about him. <laughs> Seriously, we need to be thankful for Scott's preaching. He gives us God's word and makes sure that we hear both spirit and truth each and every Sunday, okay? But unfortunately, Today, we see three types of liberal preaching that exist. First of all is popular psychology. You've heard some of these folks, how to overcome and how to think positively. And they almost never get their Bible out. We also see ethical sermonettes, people who are, or say, be good, be a nice person, you'll get into less trouble, and the bad people will be the losers. Again, no spiritual, uh, really no spiritual basis in some of uh, what they're preaching. Also, there's the social gospel. Should we treat each other kindly? Should we feed the poor and things like that? Absolutely. But race relations and social justice and what we might call Christian socialism, that's not going to do it. That doesn't do it. Only the true gospel, the grace of God, will see men come to Christ and transform and save mankind. So a quick recap from Sunday. If you weren't here, um, again, Scott was talking about worshiping and spirit and truth. He said, read the word, pray the word, sing the word, preach the word, see the word. Basically, live it. Live the word. How are we doing? How are we doing? He also mentioned words of application for true worship. Do not refuse him who is speaking. In other words, 
we better not play games with God. He also said God is speaking to his people through Christ. Again, he has to be our focus when it comes to worship. It's not about you or me. There's also more, more greater accountability today. The more revelation that we have, again, they didn't have the New Testament when, when, when we're reading Paul here. <laughs> okay? We have more revelation of God's word. You know what they say, to whom much is given, much is required. We've got a responsibility, and we are going to be held accountable one day. I like number four. He said, worship is more than visible and audible elements. We must also always seek the presence of the Holy Spirit. Again, sometimes we get caught up with the temperature. We caught up with the, the music that's being played or sung. You know, I've heard churches, you know, splitting because of the color of the carpet, right? No, no. We need to understand Jesus should always be the focus. And whenever we substitute anything for Jesus, okay, we're going to sacrifice true worship. We truly are, okay? It will not cut it if we try to put ourselves in the center and, and our comfort. It's all about worshiping God. And finally, so how do we worship in spirit and truth? Okay, let's look at a better definition of worship. Not that Webster's. Let's look at what we, I would say, is a good definition of worship. Worship is when reverence and adoration produce passionate praise. The height of devotion is reached and produces thanksgiving and praise in word and song. This includes reading and praying and singing God's word back to him. Ever think about that? We know we were created in the image of God. We know that. We're also created to have the mind of Christ. But the tragic fact today is that Christians do not think too Christianly. We have too many Christians without Christian minds. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as a man thinks within himself, so he is. We have succumbed to the secular notion through an unwillingness to think like Jesus. And we've also lost the desire to be pure. Proverbs 4, 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. And thinking impure thoughts will result in impure action. Speaking of Thurston, hold on. <laughs> Ralph Waldo Emerson had a quote. He said this, Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an act, and you reap a habit. Sow a habit, and you reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. And I think that applies for ourselves, for our families, for our church. It all ties in, doesn't it? Leviticus 19.2, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then Paul tells us in Philippians 14, 8, what should we be thinking about? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, that's Christian thinking. That's the mind of Christ. We must be committed to the discipline of a pure mind. We don't want to settle for whatever the world throws our way like some Christians. We must be different because we have Christian minds. And we can only find discipline of the mind if we have a profound exposure and continual immersion of what? Of God's word. We've got to know this. How else are we going to know what's right and wrong? What are we supposed to do? 
So why don't we do it? Sometimes we say we're too busy. Sometimes we just don't have time. I think we better be careful because if we're that busy, we're too busy, aren't we? Ongoing devotion to God requires confession. Unconfessed sin creates a barrier between us and God when we don't acknowledge our sin. And finally, the presentation of our bodies and our entire lives is an ultimate act of worship. This is our submission. Our devotion must include or conclude in consciously yielding every part of our personality, of our ambition, of our relationships, our every hope, yielding it to Christ. Our confusion about worship, sometimes we do have confusion about worship, and and it becomes an even more tragic failure if we don't have the correct answer to the important question. What is that? Why do we worship? Is it for God or for man? The unfortunate assumption is that worship is primarily for us to meet our needs. The unfortunate assumption, okay, is that service or Sorry, to meet our needs. Services have become entertainment-focused. It becomes an argument argument about what kind of music. Worshippers are merely uncommitted spectators who silently sit back and grade the performance. This can have an effect on the preaching as it becomes less and less about God's word. In other words, biblical information is minimized and the sermons are short and full of stories. And the danger becomes anything and everything that possibly makes the marginal church attender uncomfortable. And we remove those from our worship services. There's a danger there. That should be a red flag. We begin to ask each other such questions like, well, what did you think of the service today? What should the question be? What did God think of our service, our praise? What did I give to him today? Did it glorify God? That's the question we should ask. We forget that we are not here simply to receive an emotional or spiritual lift, but to worship in spirit and truth. Again, John 24, 424. We must never forget that true worship begins not with man as its focus, but with God. He is the one that should be pleased and glorified by our worship, and everything in our corporate worship should flow from this understanding. We need to make sure we are doing God-centered worship. What does that mean? Well, a couple things. We must give worship divine priority. Worship is the number one priority of the church. God desires worship above anything else. Every Christian must understand worship is the ultimate priority of his or her life. It should be the occupation, the sustenance, and the priority of us as believers. And secondly, we must make worship about divine presence, Jesus being here, the Holy Spirit being present with us in our worship. God desires our praise, and for those who worship in spirit and truth, he gives us the promise of his presence. What does Matthew 18, 20 say? Where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Just think of what an awareness of Christ's presence here at Pitts Baptist Church would do to our corporate worship each Sunday. So what are some practical ways we can worship in spirit and truth? Worship does not just happen. It requires careful preparation. It it actually takes work. Okay? Preparation begins on Saturday night. 
I actually started saying this a few years ago. Uh, it begins on Saturday night. Clothing clean and laid out. Breakfast menu already decided upon. Going to bed at a reasonable time. Getting up in plenty of time to get to church. Praying. Praying is essential. Praying for the service. Praying for our pastor. Praying for the music. Okay. Back to the video. Were they prepared on Sunday morning for church? For, let me say it again. Were they prepared for worship? I remember. I'm going to talk about my parents here. Saturday night, I remember. And I bet you some of y'all will remember this. Again, I'm not, I'm not, as, I'm not as young as I might look. The gray hair doesn't. Yeah. On Saturday night, I remember Lawrence Welk and Hee Haw. We got our Saturday night bass. We'd make sure we had our Sunday school lessons read. I remember a mom under the hairdryer with a big balloon. Uh, remember that? And we'd get to bed at a decent time. Preparing on Saturday night to worship on Sunday morning. Preparation. Expectancy. We should come to corporate worship expecting to uniquely meet God. Do we do that? And again, I'm not preaching at y'all. I'm talking to myself as well. Do we come expecting to uniquely meet God on Sunday mornings? Passion is elevated and God's word comes with a unique power and intensity of devotion that does not come as readily in individual worship. We will experience what we expect. Worship in truth. We need to come informed of God's truths because our sense of worship is governed by what we know and believe of God. The better informed we are, being filled with God's truths, the better we can worship. And finally, worship in spirit. You know, worship is not an external activity. True worship flows from the inside out, from within our spirit, from the spontaneous affections of a heart that loves God. I'll close with a quick story. Every morning I get up, I get up way too early, but I, I walk our family dog. It's, it's really my son's dog, but we all claim Blue. Blue's our dog, okay? Or maybe he's actually the one walking me now that I think about it. But, you know, it's been so hot and humid lately. I get back from a walk. I've got to take my issue. I'm soaking wet at 5 a.m. in the morning, okay? But like clockwork, as soon as we come in the front door, you know what Blue's doing? Heading straight for the water bowl. He can't get there soon enough. And he laps and laps. I'm talking 30 seconds, 45 seconds, maybe a minute. He just thirsts for that water. It reminds me of Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? When can I go and meet with God? Talk about anticipation. Talk about a thirst. Makes me ask, does my soul thirst for Almighty God like that? Do we want to show Him praise and honor and give Him glory in our worship? If so, then we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Thank you. Um, Any comments or questions? I always do that in Sunday school. We got a little bit of time. Yes, Lori. Yes. Okay. You want me to read it real quick? Okay. And again, I can't correct. I'm plagiarizing. Okay. 
Worship is when reverence and adoration produce passionate praise. The height of devotion is reached and produces thanksgiving and praise in word and song. This includes reading and praying and singing God's word back to him. Any comp? Yes. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, have you ever heard that quote? Have y'all heard that quote before? It's a really good quote. Let me read that again. That is a good one. Sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. I don't know about y'all. The older I get, I am such a habitual person. Whatever I get in the habit of doing yesterday and today, I'm doing tomorrow. I know I better get in good habits. I don't have all good habits, but I promise you, I think most of us are creatures of habit, aren't we? So we better, del- you know, we better have good habits, develop good habits, especially good spiritual habits. So that is a good quote. Tell you what, we'll wrap up for now if there's nothing else. Thank you all for allowing me to, to speak tonight. Hopefully, uh, my, my prayer is always for me to get out of the way and let God speak, okay? And, and hopefully, uh, something was said tonight that will uh, maybe not just touch our heart, but change us. You know, look at things a little bit differently.